Hi everyone, I'm Mark Cooper from Bivar.re. Welcome to this latest episode in our Rethink Energy podcast series. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Jackie Hochreiter, Sustainability Lead for Europe at AB InBev. If you haven't heard of the company, you will have certainly heard of some of their brands, which include Bex Blue and Budweiser. Like many leading corporations, AB InBev has embarked on a major sustainability journey. Jackie will talk us through the journey so far, the successes and challenges overcome along the way, and what's next. Also, as we slowly start to emerge from the current health crisis and face the challenge of rebuilding the economy, we discuss the opportunity we have to build back greener and whether we will see a new sense of urgency in addressing the global threat of climate change. I hope you enjoy the episode. Please check out other podcasts and content at rethink-energy.com and follow us on social media to join the debate. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be with you guys today. Really pleased you could join us. And we dive straight in, Jackie. So I've mentioned the sustainability strategy um, already, and I was reading through that the other day, and that sets a number of goals to be reached by 2025, informed by the UN Sustainability Development Goals. And it covers a wide range of business areas, agriculture, water stewardship, packaging, and sourcing of energy from renewables. Can you give us a, an overview of the strategy and its targets? So how did this transition begin? And as we find ourselves here in 2020, um, are you on track to meet those targets in five years time? Absolutely. So just to start at the beginning, you mentioned some of our brands, Mark, and many people aren't so familiar with the corporate brand, but they will know our company as a distinctly local and, and very, very much embedded within the communities kind of company. Right. So ABMBev is very proud of its European heritage. We've been around for over 600 years. Um, we began brewing in Leuven in Belgium in 1366. That was the first Stellartois ever made as a sort of a special edition Christmas beer. And we've come all the way to, to become the world's leading brewer and we take our responsibility very seriously. We do want to be here for 100 plus years more to come and that of course means a focus on you know long-term resilience and addressing the, the climate challenge. So we do believe firmly that sustainability is our business and that's not only linked to our local communities but it's also related to the fact that we brew with only four simple ingredients, right? They're all natural, they're all heavily reliant on, on the ecosystems being healthy. So we brew only with barley hops yeast and water. And the way that we designed our sustainability goals around that is specific and strategic, right? So it's making sure that we do have supply security on those areas, on the grains that we need, on the watersheds that we draw from. And we also don't deplete those in such a way which detriments the the communities because we need the entire ecosystem to, to grow and thrive. Just to also take it back, you know, this is not new for our company. Um, we started our sustainability journey formally. You can say in 2008, of course, we had initiatives and, you know, folks driving energy efficiency, water reductions prior to that. But we set our first set of formal goals in 2008 and we refreshed that on the 2013 to 2017 horizon. We achieved all of those goals that we set 2013 to, to 17. We reported on them externally, but they tended to be quite internal focused. And I think it's not unusual that companies have started by cleaning out their own houses, by focusing on their own operations but they weren't easy to share and and they weren't really inspiring in in a certain way. They tended to be about, you know, hectoliter per hectoliter metrics, which is a specifically beer-related metric. Now we talk about not just being as efficient as we possibly can, although that's part of it, but a more holistic partnership and, and external approach where we talk about what will it take to secure all of our high-risk watersheds around the world by 2025. 
of course, part of that is what we do now and just do it better. So the focus is on internal efficiencies, of course, doesn't lose its relevance. But the 2018 goals that we launched in line with the UN SDGs were our most ambitious yet. And the reason was because they allowed us to step out into the world and, and into the space of partnerships, supply chains, and local communities where we need to work very closely with you know, a number of different parties, different organizations collaboratively in order to make a big difference. But as the world's biggest brewer, we wanted to be taking that stretch, building that ambition and showing a leadership position. We believe it's truly important. And you mentioned about the the journey starting early on. I mean, I guess that's a journey that society has been going on, um, governments have been going on, um, corporations. And and I guess it started almost as a nice to have back whenever when and has just become more and more critical and central as times evolved until now. So on on that journey, Jackie, I'm guessing there's been sort of an education process and a a degree of um, convincing that's been needed along the way. And I'm assuming now this is as much about doing good business, responsible business as it is about to combat climate change and other environmental considerations. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, there is definitely something to be said for the, the science. The science has externally become more reliable, become more robust, become more specific, especially around the guidelines on the two degree scenario. Now what we see on the 1.5 scenario for, for climate action. So I think that did help to streamline the clear body of, of knowledge and the clear commitment from many of the governments around the world. But also from an internal perspective, we had a quite a key shift that happened between you know, 2017, 2018, where the sustainability say responsibility shifted from corporate affairs communication CSR department into our procurement department right so I'm a member of the procurement function I work very closely with our supply chain and in terms of the the goods and services that we need to execute our business in embedding sustainability from the very beginning and we believe that that's a critical strategic pivot that we made around the time that we did go after the more external more kind of supply chain decarbonization rather than just ABI brewery focus from that perspective it was very important that the CPO which is the case Tony Milliken is responsible for driving and executing sustainability throughout the business in partnership with the other functions operations marketing communications corporate affairs regulatory etc and what that means is basically we can secure the materials and design for the impact and the change that we wish to see from the very beginning right and we can also work with the experts ABI is not an expert goodness knows in for example paper labels or you know, in caustic sodas, but the guys who work on those raw materials, which are integral to execute our business, they know very well how to improve the sustainability credentials, how to drive innovation and how to unlock that circular economy and energy and resource efficient equation for the longer term. And I'll dive into uh, into some detail around the different elements of the um, strategy in a minute, but just on, on, on the kind of global business front, um, obviously you have that huge global um, footprint, you know, pretty extensive supply chain spread over multiple countries. H- how has the challenge been in terms of getting that strategy work on, on a global basis? Have there been different challenges in different countries or different approaches that have been needed to reflect local supply chains? Sure. So I think it's a good opportunity, Mark, to actually share the the sustainability goals that we've set to 2025, which are as follows. So we have a goal to be 100% renewable electricity by 2025, no exceptions. And that would be as a result of additionality, right? So building new assets, new solar assets, wind farms, et cetera, to drive that change. The second is to reduce uh, scope three, two, and one, right? So that's supply chain as well as our own internal emissions by 25% versus 2017 baseline. 
The third is around circular packaging. So 100% of our products will be in packaging that is returnable or made from majority recycled content. A fourth one is around smart agriculture. So that is talking about skilled, connected, and empowered for 100% of our farming base, our direct farming base globally. And of course, last but not least is water stewardship, very, very important as one of the largest off-takers of water in the world. 100% of our communities in high-stress areas will have measurably improved water availability and quality. So I think that's important in terms of the scope and the depth of our commitments climate action is even split out into two different approaches because it's such a complex area and it's definitely something that we need to drive both within our own ability to contract as an energy offtake as well as to influence our supply chain and help them to innovate and, and decarbonize on their side. Those are the global goals, as I mentioned, which are applicable throughout. So we're not allowing for exceptions, for example, in China or Russia, where it is, as you may know, very difficult to conclude the virtual power purchase agreement, as we've done together with Baywa, within the current regulatory framework, because energy is the competitive advantage of the nation state. It's often a national asset. Also, you know, similarly in South Africa, where I grew up, you can't just, as, as anybody, as a private sector organization, pop up a new wind farm, right? without jumping through hurdles or without having that controlled and operated by the government. But we do believe that it's our responsibility to find the way and to work with both regulators and, and private sector and organizations, academia, to drive the progress in those markets where it's more challenging. In the meantime, we're concluding those contracts for renewable electricity around the world. We've concluded over 50% of the megawatt hour annual consumption needs in order to get to that 100% renewable electricity through additionality by 2025. And you, and you mentioned um, about the uh, work you've been doing with Viva RE and tell us a little bit more about that and the recent announcement um, Budweiser becoming entirely brewed from green energy in Europe. Right. So it's a very exciting deal. And it was great to partner with Baywa on the, the virtual power purchase agreement. Uh, essentially, what we're able to do by 2022, when there's a new solar farm to be built, credit financing through the collaboration that we've executed together, we'll then be able to use that, that energy that's generated down at the solar farm to cover more than 100% of our operations requirements, right? So to brew a beer, you require a certain percentage of, of energy to get that done. And we're brewing, you know, hundreds of millions of beers every week around our, our Western European operations. So it is a phenomenal deal at that kind of scale. And we're very excited to have, of course, Budweiser in the lead, which is going to be the brand, which is also communicating and inspiring consumers to join us on the journey. Um, so to put that into focus, we sell you know, 4 million Budweiser's every single day around Europe. Um, and we believe that that is an opportunity to start 4 million conversations around a very, very simple narrative, which is that it's easy to choose renewables. There are certain brands which are able to get it done. And we do consider ourselves to be on the forefront of that in association with great energy providers like Beva. And we wish to also make that a very easy point of difference on our brands and, and on shelf, right? So it's easy for people to see that just purely by choosing Budweiser, they can contribute to something bigger, to something good and to, you know, securing our future and fighting climate change. And are you seeing evidence that consumers are choosing to opt for environmentally friendly choices when, when making that beer purchase? This is you know, arguably not the first thing that comes to mind when you're in the supermarket picking a beer off the shelf. But are we starting to see that kind of environmental consciousness coming through? 
Yeah, we do. So we have some data and insights from around the world, but some of the key insights which are interesting are that consumers are more and more asking for brands to guide them in what is sustainability and what is the right thing to do and the right thing to support. I think that's also off the back of a lot more consumers becoming more sustainability savvy and and social impact savvy, getting a little bit deeper into these claims around, for example, fair trade. What does fair trade mean? Just to be fair trade certified doesn't mean that individual who is fair trade certified is actually being uplifted in any way, shape or form. It's just a pure checkbox exercise to say, yes, we went to his farm, he's living in poverty, you know, therefore fair trade certification. So the gap between what that certification truly means on the ground in terms of supporting a positive impact and a, and a positive social environmental cause. Consumers are becoming much more critical, but they're still not able to definitively say exactly what they want. So they need credible brands to come with very simple stories and very simple claims, which are obviously checking out, as to, to guide them in their purchases. And that's definitely something which is coming into their consideration ranking when they, when they look at purchase preference and doing that purchase and repeat purchase, of course, which is fantastic for the brands to be rewarded for the efforts that they make on sustainability. We also see people, you know, more and more, and just to put it in perspective, of course, we're in a global health crisis and insights are changing. The world is accelerating at a rate that we never thought it would. So sort of pre- health crisis uh, insights were telling us that people were very much willing to pay more. So that's a, it's really a monetary reward to brands that are sustainable. We also see organizations benefiting from their sustainable portion of their portfolio in food and beverage, um, growing at high rates and, you know, premiumizing at, at stronger rates, really linked in trend to those sustainability claims. That's a consistent insight across food and bev, alcohol, non-alcohol. But of course, as, as we now are going through this health crisis, it remains to be seen what's going to come out on the other side. We're expecting that people will be you know, more tending towards affordability, tending towards comfort, tending towards brands that they trust. And again, you know, the, the simplicity of the narrative doesn't go away. However, we feel that people will be maybe more connected to the climate crisis than arguably was the case before. So the virus, in in a very strange way, can help people to almost project what the future might feel like and look like in terms of that physical threat, that physical stress that they will be under if behavior doesn't change. So I think that remains to be seen. But again, it needs to be balanced with the affordability narrative, with the pragmatism of reducing your materials, reducing your inputs, reducing your resources, just quite simply doing the right thing to be able to mitigate against whatever the, the results and whatever might come essentially in relation to climate change in the future. And that's really interesting. And we've seen a lot of sort of debate happening on that topic already. Obviously, there's the emergency stage at the moment in terms of the crisis, which we will need to get by, but the discussion on, on, on lessons learned. And there's been lots of content on the next global threat that, that's coming. And this one potentially is, you know, is catastrophic unless we make some real headway over the next 10 years. So from what you're saying there, you think, hope, then there could be a, coming out of Corona, um, a new sense of urgency globally, collectively working to combat the next and and very real global threat of climate change, which is, you know, imperatively, um, it seems not so imminent, but in in the larger scheme of things, it is literally just around the corner. Yeah, and and absolutely. I mean, there is a, the UN expects that there will be, you know, a $7 trillion investment required to prepare for the climate emergency and avoid, you know, the disaster that would be the climate emergency. But they also predict that the earnings, if we do it right, would be in the order of $13 trillion. So the investment case is, is not always easy to swallow. We have certain investment cases in our business, which are sometimes 
only offset by tax increasing, right? As, as the tax shoots up for certain things like the European Emission Trading Scheme, where we, we get penalized more and more for polluting, then of course the business case becomes more and more attractive to invest in certain clean alliance, more energy, energy efficient practices, which prior to, to the tax shooting up was, was just not you know, making business sense, although it of course would be the right thing to do in the long term. So I think as, as the environment shifts and as the incentive shifts, particularly guided by government, and of course it needs to be a combination of the carrot and the stick, you know, by no means are, are taxes and, and increasing taxes the only way to drive the right behavior. Certain things like incentives, grants, and encouraging private sector particularly to, to follow that path through incentives and proactive grants is, is also a fantastic way of going about it. But at the end, the business case should, should also be balancing for what is expected to come and for accessing and unlocking that potential 13 trillion gain at the end of the road. So the first move is that the leaders in creating some of these deals and some of these shifts and some of these transitional steps that need to take place should be gaining their fair share of the size of the pie, which is up for grabs at the end of the day, which is fantastic because at the end, the health emergency is slightly different in in that case. The investment, of course, pays back in in saving lives and that translates to productivity and, and economic growth. But the investment in itself is just investment for the sake of investment. You know, it doesn't fundamentally reorganize a business in and of itself, an economy in and of itself to become more competitive on the long term, more cost efficient on the long term, as well as with better environmental practices. So I think that is the very exciting thing about sustainability. Of course, the payback terms are long but they're getting shorter and the you know the benefit and almost the prize in terms of being a leader unlocking some of that innovation and driving the transition is expected to be quite significantly rewarding yeah and this is another revolution that we've seen in terms of you know the whole sustainability agenda i guess being put in the environmental bracket purely but actually it's you know it, it, it's good for business we've already mentioned about consumers making those decisions but green is is a good business move Oh, absolutely. And just to come back to the point at the beginning that I made, especially when you're an organization that trades on the real the real markets, right? We create goods and services which are intrinsically natural. So if there is no natural environment, we cannot create beer, we cannot brew beer. So it's definitely for us 100% in line with our business objective. And it makes both business sense, environmental sense, and also sales marketing um, and engagement sense. The other, the other piece of the puzzle is also, of course, our, you know, our employees. It's extremely inspiring to employees to work on this. Um, you asked before about some of the challenges around you know, executing this around the world, the specific agenda, the strategy. It's amazing how people take it on, um, internalize it, come back with crazy creative ways of, of making it happen even sooner than we'd expect. And that's really just the, the power of passion and the power of, of our employees feeling inspired by you know, the agenda that we've embarked on together. And we talked about the, the the energy side quite a bit, but um, and touched on the agricultural side. I mean, as, as you mentioned at the start of the interview, you know, hops, barley, agriculture plays a huge, huge part. That is basically, I guess, where, where the life of a beer begins. Um, I was reading you have relationships, direct relationships with 35,000 farmers um, across 13 different countries, which is a pretty huge supply chain. I mean, how are you working with them as part of your kind of whole smart agriculture, smart barley initiative? Yeah, so in terms of agriculture, it's quite interesting because we are one of the only large beverage companies that has that level of direct relationships with our farmers. So almost 60% of our sourcing footprint is direct and 40% is indirect. Some of our largest competitors, for example, have 100% indirect. So they only work through 
malting houses, of course, which toast the grains before they come in to be brewed, or they work with cooperatives, traders, uh, spot buying, etc. So we are in a unique position to deliver value, to also play a part which which benefits both us and the farmers in the longer term. And just to, to make it very clear and very simple, we essentially have a commitment to visit all of our direct farmers, more than 30,000 globally, twice a year. We bring with us agronomy tools. We have both digital, satellite and you know physical tools that we help to bring along that, that they can use, that they can improve their crop protocol, their variety management strategies, anything around, you know, soil practices on their farm, analysis around which is the best area to grow and how how is it best to grow and what time of the year is best to do the certain steps in the growing and the crop cycle. So that's really a wonderful opportunity to to share back some of you know the analytics, especially around um, crop risk management and and better growing for our barley varieties. Barley is not particularly widespread crop as would wheat or, or corn meat. And it's really, you know, in our in our hands and in our interest to drive some of those capabilities in those analytics to make sure that growing barley is is interesting and also that the crops are able to survive and and be resilient in the sense of the the extreme weather that continues to get more and more extreme as the years pass. So that's definitely something that we we look into from an agriculture perspective. And we we really enjoy, of course, the relationships that we have with the farmers and, and working very closely with them in the field. And I'm sort of linked to that, Jackie, on the um, logistics side is obviously, you know, a lot of moving of, of all those different agricultural ingredients around the place to various different locations. How, how are you looking at the um, logistics side of things and move to a greener place, a greener footing? So, of course, I mean, getting out raw materials to our breweries, but also delivering our beers to the consumers is, is a huge part of the story. So green logistics is, has always been, of course, um, something that we focused on and something that we've worked on. And it comprises a suite of different activities. So we talk about uh, multimodal. Can we use waterways? Can we use trains? For example, in Russia, we have almost 30%, even 40% sometimes of our movements across you know, the largest country in the world going by train, which is fantastic. It's definitely also reducing the emissions from diesel trucks at that level. So just to put it into perspective, the goals that ran from 2013 to 2017 related to carbon reduction, we saw a 12% carbon emission reduction based on our green logistics efforts. So that is, as mentioned, everything related to multimodal, weight per shipment, alternative fuels, and of course, very important, moving to um, different vehicles like electric and, and hydrogen, which we've been doing more and more as, as an organization. So for example, CNG, we're also increasing the percentage of our fleet. Right now, we're somewhere between 4 and 5%, which believe it or not, is, is also ahead of the market. We're trying to grow that up to 13% year on year, which is just a fantastic way to reduce the impact in the emissions from diesel. We're also looking at biofuels in the UK specifically. We've run a pilot on that this year. That gets you up to reducing almost 100% depending on the concentration, but you can reduce quite easily 90% of your carbon emissions per run. And it's it's just something that we also find exciting in terms of the innovation and the technological advancements for the future. So electric trucking, you know, hydrogen vehicles, and also hybrids of those combined you know, hydrogen electric or, or electric gas. These are very, very exciting opportunities for the future. In Europe, we've actually gone ahead and purchased already three. You know, we'd love to go faster and it's really a call to action for the partnership that we require from the original equipment manufacturers in automotive is to ramp up the production and try to meet that sales target that the EU has now set for 55% of their sales to be on carbon neutral or emission-free vehicles by 2025. So, 
there was only, for example, one key OEM in Germany, they only issued their first series of electric trucks up to 50 trucks, right? When they're normally doing series production runs in, in the tens of thousands. So we do see that as a kind of an opportunity to improve and um, to make sure that the material availability and the truck manufacturers and the guys who are able to, to put these really, really game-changing and breakthrough technologies on the market are taking the risks and walking with us on that journey. And you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, ABMF has been around for a long time and for the long term, these initial kind of 2025 targets, once they are met, you know, I guess will just be the start. Where do you see things going next then in some of those different sustainability areas that we talked about, some of the kind of opportunities and barriers to kind of driving forward even further regarding sustainability in those areas? I mean, it's the start of the journey, right? And this is definitely something as mentioned that we want to drive and deliver for the next 100 plus years. And we want to do it for the generations of future drinkers, of of future individuals on the planet who want to enjoy, who want to celebrate, who want to have a beer with their, their friends, right? So it's definitely for us something to keep driving on. And one of the ways that we do that is through building out the partnerships that we've already started on. So some, just to mention, we're a member of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. We're also working very closely with the WWF, the Nature Conservancy for, for our water topics. And we're a member, of course, of RE100. And we work very closely with the Carbon Disclosure Project to track and monitor and drive the progress there on our, our decarbonization journey. But again, we cannot accomplish the sustainability goals alone. And innovation is also definitely a key to unlocking some of the value that we aim to create there. When we designed our sustainability goals that I mentioned to you, Smart Agriculture, Climate Action, Circular Packaging, and Water Stewardship, we basically designed those with such a high-level ambition that we only knew sort of 70-80% of the, the way to get there. The remaining 20-30% was an unknown. And a key program that we've since brought in is called the 100 Plus Accelerator. And it's our work with startups, which basically, you know, have a sustainable value proposition at their very heart. And we give them a grant of $100,000 to execute a proof of concept on their sustainability, say, value proposition, and then help them to design the way to scale that throughout our business, as well as other organizations that we, of course, have relationships with, you know, from investor side or from association side. So I ran that program for the first time last year for a European organization. We had three startups. They were working on pretty different things. Uh, The one was a solar-powered desalination technology. So very much, you know, engineering focused and for application in our breweries or even decentralized on our local farmlands. Another one was about edible cups. So thinking about addressing the plastic problem, thinking about using one of our byproduct streams, which is the spent grains, um, the spent grains from the brewing process, which are very fibrous and can actually be used to create furniture or other items. We looked at a R&D proof of concept there for how do we create cups and cutlery and containers to address single-use plastics and single-use packaging. And last but not least, we also had sustainable, reusable retail displays, right? So how do we go from putting in a billion kilograms of cardboard into our retail, where you see on the corner of your, your shop, big promotions, all built from cardboard and just thrown away at the end of it. That's a huge loss in the system and, and just an inefficient way of executing. Um, this year, we've, of course, continued on that again. I'm working with a very exciting company called Miva, which is working on fractionation of glass and aluminium material. That's to make the end of life and recycling part of our glass and cans 
value chain more efficient, more effective, and of course, more sustainable. And I'm also working with actually a suite of interesting companies which are working on ag tech. Um, and we're looking basically to, to execute 100% transparency across our agriculture footprint in our indirect supply chains, right? So not only working with our direct supply chain, for agriculture, we have a very good view on that, but how do we unlock that 40% of indirect farmers through technology and through more innovative approach to enable that connection, enable those recommendations to go through and enable some of the yield productivity, environmental performance indicator and metrics improvements that we would like to see. Clearly a comprehensive strategy, short term, medium term and, and long term. You said earlier in the interview, you know, AP InBev is, is one of the corporations within the food and beverage industry that's, that's leading the way. How does the rest of the industry compare? I mean, is this is this consciousness kind of industry wide? Um, are you sharing best practice with other companies in the sector? Um, how, how's that working? No, absolutely. And sustainability is for sure not a competition. And we we see it as such that sharing best practice is really the way to go. So we do have a good comprehensive network of, of sharing best practice with our, with our brewing peers. That's through the various local associations and also the, the European wide Brewers of Europe Association, where we have a sustainable development committee and also, you know, AIM, which is the, the European Brands Association. I'm also attending the, the sustainable development meetings and meeting with other large FMCG, not necessarily beverage, but food, cosmetics, etc., on a bi-monthly or quarterly basis to basically drive some of the, the difference there and, and share the learnings. We often do collaborations in terms of logistics also for, for example, reverse logistics. We've worked with Coca-Cola in Belgium to manage a reverse flow, just as, as an example. Um, but I think, you know, even more specific than, than just the collaboration, space, we've actually gone ahead and made some of our sustainability patents available, you know, open patents uh, free of charge for small and micro brewers. So we have a technology called Simmer and Strip. The patent is fairly complex. It's, it's difficult for somebody like me to read it, but I think anybody who has a brewing background or is in the brewing operations is able to understand the type of capital, the type of process they need to execute that patent. And it is free of charge, right? So it's it's not patent protected in that respect for small and micro brewers. And we charge a competitive market fee to the larger brewers who can, of course, fund it with their own capital. So it's, I think it's a great way to to make some of the inventions, which are you know really specifically helping in the brewing process to decarbonize. Just to give you a view on what that innovation and that that IP does on the Simran strip, it's a way to bubble gas particles through your kettle as opposed to applying external heat and then having a lot of losses in evaporation. Overall, that saves us five percent on the total brewery process, which is pretty insane. Five percent reduction on carbon emissions on the total brewery process. And that's simply by applying that gas bubble technology. So it's pretty exciting and it's pretty great that we have the scientists and the technologists who created that kind of amazing, you know, energy saving and sustainability driven type of innovation for our beers. And is that a big part of the sustainability side of what you're doing, the kind of R&D side? I mean, these kind of seem like potentially small innovations can make a huge difference. Yeah, if you look at our footprint, over 400 breweries worldwide, including our partner breweries and our ecosystem of, of craft breweries, if you apply a 5% reduction on, on the total carbon footprint of all of those breweries, you have a significant saving in terms of tons of CO2 on an annual basis. So that's wonderful. And of course, as mentioned, we believe that other breweries should take this on, not just that we keep it for ourselves and we achieve that decarbonization on our own on our own basis, but we really do encourage uh, the brewing sector to take that Simran Strip technology on. 
Great. So there's, there's a strong culture in the industry, obviously a very strong culture within AB InBev. But we mentioned that the um, early on in the interview that, you know, the clock is ticking. Climate change is happening now and, and the effects are only going to increase numerous articles that really say the next 10 years are going to be critical. And indeed, a lot of the kind of global European climate change targets um, set around 2030. In, in terms of speeding up this process, what do you see as the kind of key enablers that need to happen for you as a business to be able to drive forward your sustainability agenda at a pace where you know, yourself, the industry can really make a, you know, an increasingly meaningful difference in, in combating that looming climate change challenge? It's a very, very good question, and it's really the question. So I'm not going to say I have an answer for it, but the key for us is 100% in collaboration. So essentially making those changes wherever possible, doing everything that we can in collaboration with our supply chain. So all of our, you know, for, for example, in Europe, the scope that I cover, we have over 12,000 suppliers that we're activating and engaging with every day to make that difference. Our partners and the new technologists out there, which have potentially breakthrough innovations, so open innovation type of approach, you know, our internal R&D um, guys who are always working with academia, with, you know, PhD students, with really exciting, you know, future looking and future driven types of innovation processes. Also, a lot of the time in collaboration, you know, with other FMCGs, which, which might benefit on, on a, similar, a similar scale. And then, of course, working with governments to make sure that the policies that they set are incentivizing the right behavior, right? So, you know, everything around the carbon leakage discussion is, is very important within the context of the Green Deal. You know, how do we make sure that we don't penalize carbon emission in Europe to such an extent that people or or organizations just shift their purchases or shift their operations outside of Europe um, and continue to pollute outside of the regulatory framework. So I think there, there needs to be a global coordinated approach, which in my view, and this is really my, my personal view, which is stronger than the current framework of scientists and organizational partners you know, in terms of multilaterals to guide the discussion. We have the COPs, we have the UN, but in my view, we need something like the WHO or stronger, which is specific 